this summer we've been studying the Psalms, and I gather that last Sunday when we couldn't be here, you had a real Psalm fest. Do all the good stuff when I'm not here. And the, the Zoom people got to be there, and we, we saw it later. We saw the, uh, the recording. Thank goodness we could see the recording. It was a wonderful service. Praise the Lord. Yeah? A lot of you took part, and that was so special. Well, today, we're going to be studying Psalm 19. And I don't remember the last time that I saw God's glory in the Milky Way. And all the wonderful stars that make up the constellations. We have too much light. We have our LEDs. We have so much light everywhere. And then we have so many trees in Westchester, which I'm thankful for, but they do block out the sky a lot, don't they? <sighs> so what are we looking at when we look there? Well, we're looking at the galaxy. If the galaxy is a bit like this plate that my young daughter Sarah many years ago made for Grandma, <laughs> we're a star somewhere out here. And the stars for the constellations are the stars near us, aren't they? And then when we look out this way, then we see a sort of ridge of stars too close to each other to resolve, and that's what we're seeing with the Milky Way when we see it. Yeah. Well, the ancient peoples got to see this kind of sky all the time. Well, that's maybe when the moon's full and more moons, right? And ordinary people out at night may be busy avoiding bandits and sheep stealers and uh, wild animals, and may be glad of the light. But it's David and God's people who see not just the light to protect us, but to see God's handiwork, huh? The heavens declare the glory of God. Many psalms, several psalms, enjoy the skies. For instance, in Psalm 8, when I consider the work of your hands, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you are mindful of him? We appreciate beauty both in the skies and in nature, but David sees more than beauty. He affirms that what we see bears silent but obvious witness to the glory of God, his maker. Well, let's look at this psalm, which C.S. Lewis says is perhaps the greatest poem in the whole collection. The psalm has three sections. The glory of the heavens, the glory of God's law and prayer to purify my heart. And that looks like to me three sections for a sermon, but I'm never going to get through all three. First, though, let's look at the glory of the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. We're going to know this by the time we've <laughs> repeated it. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. This is an example of what they call parallelism, isn't it, in Hebrew poetry. The line has two segments. 
The second one, a little bit shorter, usually, usually saying pretty much the same thing, but in a different way. The Psalms don't use rhymes as much as we do, and they don't use meter. Single poets did. If the Psalms did do that, it probably wouldn't carry over into translation two or three thousand years later. But the use of parallelism does carry over. And it's so sweet, isn't it? Even to a non-poetic person like me. But I want you to look at what struck me was the skies proclaimed the work of his hands. And that's our first point. God made all that we see in the sky. The Old Testament Bible is very clear. But what we see is made by an invisible God out of nothing. We are not to worship the sun. We are not to worship the moon. They were made by God. Well, I, I don't think we do worship the sun and moon. But, of course, ancient peoples often did. And Genesis was written about the time when the Egyptians worshipped the sun god Ra which they did for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And maybe that's why in Genesis, they're, not, they're called lights, aren't they? God made the lights, the sun for the day and the light for the night. I don't actually say sun and moon, just to be quite sure. We're not talking about Ra, we're talking about God, right? Yeah. We are to worship the Creator. Now, we take this for granted. None of us worship. No, most of us don't worship the sun or the moon. Mostly in our society. But according to C.S. Lewis in his book, The Reflections on the Psalms, this high view of creation was quite unusual in ancient civilizations, making everything out of nothing one God. Quite unusual. God made the stars. And our star, the sun, he made them for his own glory. We should not mess with anything less. They didn't just happen. They were created. Don't let ideas about astrology become any more important to you than the Easter Bunny. I'm not going to worry about it. Our second, God made all of nature on earth too. Genesis says, God was the author, not just of these stars, but of everything. And other psalms than this one joyfully tell of nature and the skies, nature and the skies of God's handiwork. For instance, Psalm 104 sings of God creating the earth. And I say sings because they were sung. I don't know about you. I was brought up long before I was a Christian. Everybody went. We had services all the time. And they were sung, the psalms. And I used to get nothing out of it at all. Now I wish I could sing the psalms more. And we sang the concept this morning with some beautiful praise songs, didn't we? So Psalm 104 sings of God creating the earth. He says, he set the earth on its foundation. And then the psalm details his provision for everything on the earth. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. He exults in this thought. Oh Lord, how many are your works? Yeah, in wisdom you made them all. You care for the land and water it, and you enrich it abundantly. That's Psalm 69, 65. God made all of nature. Truly, it's, this is my Father's world. We sing that a lot, 
at um, Cedar Manor, the nursing home where we do a service once a month. And I sing it because I think it's Anne Lawther's favorite hymn, and she was our pianist for about 10 years. And this is my father's world. Hey, it's good to think about the environment. We must, we must set goals to preserve what's there by setting aside our national parks and protected areas, both on the land and in the oceans. I'm happy about that. But our society tends to lift up nature beyond its created status. We even personify nature in the way we talk about things. Ah, we say, scientists say, I read something yesterday. Nature, Mother Nature has been working on this for thousands of years. Well, that's okay, I'm sure. But as Christians, we should be careful to worship the creator, not the creation. third thing is that God keeps things going. The second, um, I think we skipped a lot. Um, the second line there, day after day, night after night, caught my eye. Day after day, night after night. There's a regularity in God's creation. That's because God keeps things going. The Hebrew poets loved the regularity of nature. They loved its constancy, its dependability. The moon marks off the seasons. The sun knows where to go down, Psalm 104. It's a basic assumption in our lives that we know when daybreak is going to come and we know when sundown is going to come. My phone will tell me to the nearest minute when, when these things are going to happen. And science, and I love a science. Somehow I've got through a whole set of slides without showing crystal structure. <laughs> Science only works because of the regularity, because of what we call the natural laws of gravity, laws of motion. We can only study the world with our scientific method because we trust its regularity. And that regularity comes because God not only created the world, but he sustains the world. He keeps it going. The New Testament tells us more about that. The New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is the instrument of sustaining the world. Remember how Hebrews 1 starts off, verse 3. The Son sustaining all things by his powerful word. And in Colossians, in Christ, all things hold together. God keeps things going smoothly, through our Lord Jesus. But there's more to learn from these two verses, one and two. I'll get there. We're meant to listen. We're meant to listen. Catch the verbs. Well, not that one. Catch the verbs. Which were there, I thought. Yeah, declare. Proclaim, pour forth speech, display knowledge. Those are very active verbs. They're not passive. And an active verb, you remember from your English classes, demands a subject. And the subject is the heavens. They're doing it. Yeah?
The heavens are not the object of the sentence, as in, oh, I do admire the sky at night. That's fine, but that's the heavens as the object. We are not just admiring a three-dimensional picture here, even a four-dimensional. The picture is talking to us. And it's not just talking, it's saying, declaring, proclaiming. Pouring forth speech, that's a very strong verb, I'm told. Displaying, wow. And verses three to four stress that this is for the whole world. Doesn't matter if you speak Chinese or Arabic or Spanish or English or Tagalog. This message is for you. No wonder that Paul explains in Romans. No, I didn't do that. One eighteen, but since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what's made. Without excuse, we are. And Paul quotes this psalm later on in the chapter two. God intends people to see His world as His handiwork, His glory. Everyone. Well, in verse 4 to 6, David switches from the night sky to the day sky. The sun. It gives light and warmth to the whole world. Yes, we can create enough light now. But we all prefer daylight, don't we, if we can? Don't you prefer daylight? I remember long ago, I don't know why, but I was having some trousers made, some pants, made by a tailor from fabric. And I'm trying to choose the fabric in the dark attic of the tailor's office and it was a long way to do it to daylight so the pants didn't quite come out the color that i thought they would <laughs> so we like daylight but the sun is wonderful it's the source of our energy resources of course well we think of solar energy but think of wind energy too that comes from the sun the sun heating different parts of the world at different intensities creating constant winds same with the waves and even our fossil fuels that we're supposed to feel guilty about, but we still use. Um, that stored energy from the sun from millions and millions of years ago, the sun gives us what we need. Well, God made the sun. And right now, we're really, really, really aware of the sun's heat. It's lovely this morning, but it's been just warm here and hot in so many parts of the States. Three weeks of 110 degrees in Phoenix, I just can't, Im I can't imagine it. Don't tell me I was just dry heat. I can't imagine it. <laughs> and then our missionaries in Basra with 120 some in the day. Oh, it gets down to 96 at night. <sighs> and fires in Canada and fires in Greece. Nothing is hidden from its heat, says the psalmist. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Yeah, we could certainly identify with that, right? And the last point that I felt I was learning when I studied these verses was to listen and see it takes faith. Our modern mind is too busy to notice much of the time. We are preoccupied with our lives with so many things. We're not so very different from the ancients who didn't know God. Oh, yes, we enjoy a beautiful sunset. We enjoy watching glaciers carving their icebergs off. 
I love a well-done nature film, don't you? In general, people, of course, don't see God's handiwork in all of this. Maybe partly because of our science, which seems to explain so many things without the need for God. But of course it does. That's what modern science is about. We're curious. We want to explain. We want to understand. We're not satisfied with the idea of, oh, that's too difficult to explain. So that must be a special God did that. Even Isaac Newton, apparently, <clears throat> used the concept of minor variations in the planet's orbits to say, oh, God must do this. But science says, no, we've got to explain that somehow. Science never says there's no God. How could it? It couldn't say that. It couldn't say that. Don't let science ever take away the wonder of God's creation. And I say this as someone who loves science. I'm still doing it, thank the Lord. It takes faith, though, to see God's hand in creation, doesn't it? It takes faith. It wasn't not something that came easily to me when I was a young Christian. I remember thinking that I was supposed to see God's glory and looking at a tree. I wasn't doing very well at it. I admitted youth fellowship, and young Vanessa admitted it also. And maybe that was the first time I'd admit of something like that. I should admit it more often. But now, at least sometimes, consciously, as an act of faith, I turn my enjoyment of the stars, the oceans, the countryside, I turn that to praise of God and thankfulness. And that strengthens and renews my faith. It strengthens and renews my faith, which is good. Because God has designed things, so we are to walk by faith. He didn't have to do it that way, but he did. He designed things we're supposed to walk by faith and not by sight. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Whoa. But don't let our atheistic culture take this away from you. If my friend can say, there's nothing out there beyond what you can see and experience, I can say, that that statement itself takes us faith. How do you know there's no God? Yes, I could be mistaken, but maybe you're mistaken. No, let's rejoice in what's around that's beautiful. Let's work to preserve it and let's enjoy the one who made all things for his glory. This is my Father's world, exactly. Oh Lord, my God, when I am Awesome wonder, consider all thy works, all the works thy hands has made. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. Exactly. Well, that leads us to the second part of the psalm, verses 7 to 10, and that's the glory of God's law. How abrupt a transition. Have you ever thought about that? We're going from the glories of the sun rising and setting during its day, throwing light and heat over the whole world, are thinking about the law? The law? And people have worried about this transition. I have marveled at it. Maybe you have. Well, they may or may not have a suggest uh, explanation, but the suggestion is that the concept of nothing being hidden from the sun's heat leads naturally to nothing is hidden from God's searching law. Huh? Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. David declares in Psalm 139, the same God who inspires all with his laws governing the natural order 
in the natural order is the God who inspires David with his moral law that governs relationships with people. And if David uses beautiful poetry about the heavens, he's ecstatic about the law of the Lord. The devotion in those verses up there echo the devotion in great, the great Psalm 119, which I have to admit, I don't look at as often as I should because it is so long. In our psalm, he says, the ordinances of the Lord are so precious, so sweet, so rewarding. He moves from talking about God, in verse 1, that's El in Hebrew, to Lord in Hebrew, Yahweh, in these verses. We're talking about relationship. The universe is out there, but that doesn't mean that we have a relationship with God. It's the law that tells us, and then what we know in the Bible that tells us about relationship with God. Huh? The Lord deals with people. The Lord chose Abraham to be a blessing to nations. The Lord chose the Jewish people to be his people. The Lord extended his people to the whole world through Jesus Christ. The Lord gives mankind a real place in the universe. Yeah? And that's important that we have a place because of the Lord. Now, for David, the law was the Torah, part of the Bible, the Torah. Today, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have so much more to dwell on when we think about what the Bible tells us about God as Lord and how to enjoy relationship with him through Jesus Christ. We have so much. We should be rejoicing in the Bible. We should love the Bible as much as David loves God's law. Sweeter than honey, he says. Commentators seem to downplay trying to find differences between law, statutes, precepts, and commands. I expect there were different associations, though, in the mind of devout people then, just as we, we enjoy the way we say things. It's slightly different, and it conveys different things. Oh, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways, says Elizabeth Browning when she's writing a famous love poem about a husband. Wow. Let me count the ways. So David counting the ways here. And if we spent more time in this passage, which we're not going to, we could look at the um, we could look at the adjectives that describe the law. Perfect, trustworthy, right, radiant, pure, firm. And we could think about what the law does with the verbs. It refreshes. Does the Bible refresh you? Does it make you wise? Oh, not PhD smart, but wise in knowing God. Yeah? Giving joy, giving light. Oh, love it. We should spend a whole other sermon on this sometime. The third and last part of the psalm is a prayer to purify my heart. And this is David's response. He's, he's got the wonderful joy in the heavens. He's got the wonderful joy in the Lord. The Lord and you think, stop now, hallelujah, and on to the next psalm. What does he say? He moves from precious, sweetness, reward, to errors, faults, sins, transgressions. 
maybe the link is verse 11 where David says, by these precious things your servant is warned. Did you catch that? Warned about what? Well, warned about our tendency to offend our loving Heavenly Father with sin. At another time we could look at the gradation that David offers from errors, faults that I'm not even aware of, to the great transgression. Psalm 119 says, I, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And we know what Paul says to Timothy about the Bible. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching. Yeah, I got that. Rebuking. What? Rebuking. Rebuking. Correcting. What? And training. Ooh. The Bible brings us to faith in our loving Father through warnings, corrections, rebukes. And if you know, if you know the Lord as your rock and your redeemer, you will spend time in praise. You will spend time in thanksgiving. But you will spend time also in humility, as Barbara did this morning when she led in prayer, asking his forgiveness and praying that what we say and what we think will be pleasing to him because we know our tendencies to go our own way. So the <clears throat> psalm calls us to faith, to see God's hand in creation and to thank him for it and have faith that he's out there. And that's what David Deal used to call general revelation, right? The theologians. Learn to know this God through the Bible, through what is called special revelation. We have what David loved, the psalmist, but we also, we also have the story of God sending his son in the New Testament. So now a deeper faith sees not only a creator, but a loving, father-like Lord. And then this deeper faith acknowledges that we are very different from our Lord and we need his forgiveness. And when we do sin and his guidance to keep us from displeasing him, and this deeper faith sparkles when we see the life of Jesus and the sacrifice of our Savior Jesus. I'm talking about faith quite a bit. Yet I remember that there was a time when someone told me when I was searching, well, you need to have faith in God. I just stared blankly at her. I had no idea what that meant, how to get it. How do you get it? Perhaps you've had a friend, have you? Who apparently sincerely says, and maybe a little wistfully, I do admire your faith. You ever heard that? Well, I don't know about you, but I didn't get my faith just by taking a deep breath and saying, okay, I believe. It just couldn't happen that way. No, faith is a gift. Well, how do you get that gift? Well, <clears throat> that's how the pastor led me to the Lord. He said, it's a gift. God's given you a gift. You're aware of your sin. I know you are. And I was. I was a very awkward, self-centered young man, and I knew, I knew that things I needed help. So I was taught about Jesus, 
and his love and his and how this from guilt and sin was offered as a gift but I had to accept the gift and I could relate to that my parents of my birthday and well, I had to take them and unwrap them, right? I could, I could relate to that. And then I had all these questions as a scientist. But I read, I read, a, I read about the resurrection of Jesus, not just in the Bible, but about it, and how it was a credible event. It was really a lot of evidence for it. Jesus' resurrection is very important because he lives. They couldn't, couldn't give you a gift very well if he's dead. So that helped me feel I could put aside my doubts and deal with my need to accept God's gift. And by openly confessing my sinfulness and my trust that Jesus would accept me with some confidence that someone was out there and was listening. In one way or another, is that your story? Have you accepted Jesus that way? I'm pretty sure many, many, many of us have. May the Lord bless us. Whether it's the glories of nature, whether it's the straightforward goodness of the Bible, or it's a sense of our unworthiness, whichever of those three things it is, the three points there, if those movers to reaffirm our faith in Jesus May each one of us draw closer to God to, in faith today. And may our friends and neighbors, oh, may they see the love of Jesus in us. Praise the Lord.